Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. From Washington, D.C., this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine discuss the meeting between Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, and Francis Turnley and I interview senior analyst and Russia team lead at the Institute for the Study of War. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 13th of September, one year and 201 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols in New Jersey, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley with me in Washington, and foreign correspondent James Kilmer in the UK. I started by asking Don for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, the big news overnight was the massive attack on the Russian naval facility at Sevastopol in Crimea. So at least two ships that were undergoing repairs anyway have been damaged further. A major fire at the facility there in Crimea. We think about 24 people wounded, but that 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 number was, was a few hours ago. That could easily change. So Russia's defense ministry said Ukraine had launched 10 cruise missiles at the shipyard and three sea drones at ships elsewhere in the Black Sea. They say seven missiles shot down and all sea drones destroyed. Mikhail Razvoziev, who's the Moscow-appointed governor of Sevastopol, said on Telegram that the fire had injured those 24. Like I said, that was some, some hours ago. He posted a video, unusually. I don't know why, why he's allowed to do that, but hey, he posted a video showing the shipyard in flames, smoke all over the place. I mean, and there's more, there's other images you'll find on, on social media that shows a, a very devastating attack. Ukraine Ukraine's RBC Ukraine news channel were citing unnamed sources in Ukraine's military intelligence, so we can't vouch for this. However, they were saying they were claiming that an amphibious landing ship and a submarine were damaged in the attack. Some Russian messaging app channels also made that claim. There are suggestions online that a Rapusha class landing ship has been destroyed. I'd say not confirmed yet. No immediate uh, comment or reaction from Kyiv, as you might expect. They have in the past talked about attacks on Sevastopol and elsewhere on Crimea, but only after a significant amount of time. So don't expect to hear anything today. This comes as, so this attack, Ukrainian attack on Crimea, took place as Russian forces also launched drones down in the south, particularly in the Odessa region. So just before dawn, port and civilian infrastructure facilities in the Ismail district. So that's over to the west. This is the, the area on the Danube couple of hundred metres or a few hundred metres away from uh, Romania, NATO member Romania on the other bank. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, seven people wounded there. This is coming out of the governor, Ole Kipa, there. Ukraine's Air Force said it intercepted 32 of 44 Shahid drones, 131 and 136, uh, most of them direct to the southern port of Odessa. Now, elsewhere, there's uh, continuing push across all fronts. Ukraine saying they've made partial success on the pushing down in the sort of southeast direction towards Melitopol and also further east uh, in the Donetsk region. Kyiv says it's inflicted significant losses, that's their words, uh, on Russian forces south of Bakhmut. We've been talking about that for a number of days now, the, the push there on the south of Bakhmut to the high ground. A spokesman for the uh, general staff, Ukraine's general staff, staff said troops had partial success in the Klishkiva area of the Donetsk region, uh, inflicting significant losses in manpower and equipment. And we, I mean, they also know that they are pushing on the north side of Bakhmut, but that seems to be having less 
less success than than uh, either on the southern side of Bakhmut or further on the southern flank of the counteroffensive. Thanks very much, Dom. Francis, can I come to you? It's been a busy uh, 24 hours in the diplomatic space. Thanks, David. The Russian army and people will triumph against evil. The words of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un today addressing Putin on this highly publicised visit to far eastern Russia, where a deal on providing Moscow with artillery shells and anti-tank missiles for its war in Ukraine is widely believed to be on the table. A beaming Kim arrived by limousine this morning, brought in his armoured train from Pyongyang, and Putin shook hands with him at a spaceport some 620 miles from Vladivostok. I'm glad to see you, Putin said. This is our new Cosmodrome. And Russia state media quoted Kim as thanking Putin for the invitation to visit Russia, despite being busy. And there's been a video released by the Kremlin showing the two leaders touring the vast space centre ahead of their talks. Putin said the location was specifically chosen as Moscow plans to help North Korea build satellites. Kim shows great interest in rocket technology and they are trying to develop their presence in space, Putin said. Now, we understand Putin and Kim were served Siberian and Far Eastern delicacies, including crab dumplings, a salad of duck fig and nectarine, then a white fish soup and a sorbet from sea buckthorn. I prefer lemon myself. Uh, For the main course, the leaders had a choice of sturgeon with mushrooms and potatoes or marbled beef with grilled vegetables. They were offered red bilberries with pine nuts and condensed milk for dessert. All I'll say is I don't envy the food taster. I just love that they tell us all of these details. It's extraordinary. Anyway, yesterday it was Putin who was distorting history for his own ends. And today it was Kim. We understand that he told the Russian president, and I quote, The Soviet Union played a very big role in the liberation of our country, as well as the independence of our state, and our friendship has deep roots. Now Russia has risen to the sacred fight to protect its sovereignty and security against the hegemonic forces that oppose Russia. And now we want to further develop the relationship. We will always support the decisions of President Putin and the Russian leadership. I also hope that we will always be together in the fight against imperialism and the construction of a sovereign state. We are confident that the Russian army and people will certainly win a great victory in the sacred struggle to punish the gathering of evil that claims hegemony and nourishes expansionist illusions. Expansionism, imperialism, all activities the West is accused of. Yet North Korea, under the leadership of the Kim dynasty, was born and is arguably still defined today by an expansionist war they conducted, the Korean War of 1950 to 1953, of course, which began when North Korean forces backed by the Soviet Union and China invaded South Korea in an attempt to unify the peninsula under communist rule against the will of the majority of South Koreans. Hence why Western forces, including Britain, America and many others, were deployed in the South to stop their advance. And the Kim dynasty maintains power by claiming that they not only heroically held back these Western forces, when really it was the Chinese army that made the difference, but that they are effectively still doing so. It is the closest embodiment of the Orwellian state described in 1984, where the leadership deploys the idea of permanent war to keep its people in check. And whilst we're on the subject... I think there's a morbid fascination with North Korea in the West, which has a tendency to ridicule its Soviet-era eccentricities, rather like an animal trapped in a cage that people are pointing and laughing at. Yet this tendency has the danger of masking the horror. This is a monstrous regime, and any country that supports it so publicly ought to be an international pariah according to the standards of international law. Kim Jong-un talked of the Russian army fighting the forces of evil, but the North Korean people endure unimaginable suffering, deprived of even the most basic human rights. Citizens are forced into a twisted reality, stripped of their autonomy and subjected to a relentless cult of personality. We hear horrifying accounts of forced labour camps, arbitrary executions and mass starvation And meanwhile, the world watches on as the regime pursues nuclear ambitions, further imperiling global security. And I take issue with those who say, what business is it of us? They do things differently there. Their values and their culture are different. Try telling that to the North Koreans who fled the country or have died in the attempt. 
Long studies have been written that show brainwashing does not systematically work and that there are always people in any oppressive society who see through the lies. And thus one could argue that the system that we see in North Korea and the system that we see being developed in Russia are in themselves affronts to human nature and dignity. And it says a lot that modern Russia, which models itself as a great power, is having to strike a deal with such a country, especially for archaic weapons last deployed in the Soviet era. Sometimes the metaphors really do write themselves. Thank you very much, Francis. James, would you like to come in on this? What's your reaction to what we're seeing in Russia's Far East? This is a very important trip by Kim to, to, to Russia for the Kremlin. It's the first time he's been in Russia since 2019. As we all know, this is his first trip overseas since the coronavirus pandemic. North Korea slapped down incredibly hardcore sort of uh, rules, as, as you could imagine. For, for the Kremlin, they, they really need international allies. They really need arms, etc. The, the, the war in Ukraine has become so, so attritional that a lot of it is about who can make the most artillery shells. And uh, we know that Russia's really increased its uh, production levels of, of artillery shells. There's also looking for new avenues and new suppliers. And, and this is really what, what, what the trip by Kim's all about. We know that Russian Fedsman Shoigu was in North Korea in July. So there hasn't actually been any official announcement of a deal being made. There's been lots of platitudes. We saw lots of videos of Russian officials obsequiously greeting Kim. It's quite an awkward meeting because it's all done through translators as well. So it's quite a long-winded affair. As Francis was saying, it's been going on all day at uh, the new Russian Cosmodrome out, out that way. We do know that Putin said to uh, Kim that he, he would put up a, a North Korean in space, the first, first North Korean cosmonaut or astronaut, and uh, this, this pleased Kim. It does need to be added as, as a small footnote that this base station that Kim was touring was the site last month of the, the Russian moon mission, which then failed uh, within a week. Well, thank you, James and Francis. Dom Nichols, do you have any more updates for us? And would you just tell us a little bit about your movements today? Yeah, sure. So the one thing we need to talk about is Romania. Elements of a possible drone were identified on Romania's territory. I remind you again, a NATO NATO member. So this comes from Romania's defence ministry earlier today. As I said, the number of Russian drone attacks on Ismail uh, last night, which is just across the border, as in just over the river, but that's just a few hundred metres away from Romanian territory. These fragments have been found, and if confirmed, that'll be the third time such fragments have been found on Romanian territory in just recent days. So Romania's defence ministry said, very specifically, the crew of an IAR-330 Puma helicopter, that's not the important bit, forget that, of the Romanian Air Force identified fragments that could have come from a drone dispersed over an area of several dozen metres. They said earlier that emergency services had received numerous calls from the public about possible cases of drones coming down in the area. I mean, we just need to keep tracking this because it is clearly NATO territory. I said the other day that I don't think you could claim that this is an attack on NATO. That would be, that would be, I think, wrong and would be unnecessarily sort of high, high blown. Russia would love it if, uh, if that claim was made. However, I made the point before that there may now be calls for uh, Romania or NATO to assist with putting air defence forces in the area, which which could conveniently then cover the port of Ismail. There's a certain reluctance. I've been speaking to a few people when I was when I was out and about, particularly down in the Air Force Academy, who say that there's there's real reluctance from NATO more broadly, but but Romania specifically to try and claim that because that that could be. Well, I think they were suggesting that that could make them stand out as a as a particular target for sort of diplomatic aggression by by Russia but i think it it is an idea that is certainly doing the rounds so we just need to keep tracking that i mean if if somebody were killed remember last year the two people in poland were killed which turned out to be by ukrainian air defense missiles that came down albeit in response to an attack by russia but if there was loss of life here in romania i think that would ramp the stakes up very much higher so I think we just do need to keep track of what's happening with these these attacks on Ismail and the impact, now literal physical impact, on a NATO member. As for what I'm doing today, so I'm up in, in upstate New Jersey. I'm about to go to the Picatinny Arsenal, which is, well, there's two basically two, two things there that I'm going to visit, the Joint Programme Executive Office that 
organizes and manages the distribution, the logistics behind the military aid that the US is sending to Ukraine. So it's this organization that physically sends all the uh, you know, tanks and, and air defense missiles and all the, all the rest of it out to Ukraine. So I'm going to be speaking to them about what their life looked like on February the 23rd last year and then how it massively changed overnight. And then also co-located there is, the, is an organization that basically takes lessons from, well, from, from all over the place, from exercises, war games, what have you, and, and operational activity, and then turns that into uh, requirements for future future force development for the US forces. So I'm going to be going to be talking to those uh, to those uh, folk up there. And um, I've got a, got a videographer with me. So there will be hopefully some some interesting images full of full of heavy metal. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Dom, and we look forward to welcoming you here tonight in, in Washington. So best of luck today. Look forward to seeing the video. James Kilner, can I come to you? There's a really fascinating story you've written up, which speaks to the apparent paranoia of Vladimir Putin. Can you talk us through what you found? Yeah, this was a this was a, a good insight, David, as, as you rightly say. So this this came as the second recorded instance of a defection from Putin's Federal Protection Service which is really his sort of Praetorian guard, his bodyguard, Errol specifically, is to guard Putin and to guard other senior members of, of the Kremlin. This guy, he, he's now in Ecuador, and, and his job, he was a dog handler in, a, in one of Putin's secret datches that he's built in Crimea since the 2014 uh, annexation, illegal annexation. And he was able to give a uh, fascinating, and as far as I'm aware, very unique insight into the paranoia uh, that, that that has gripped Putin uh, recently, especially since since the start of the war on, on Ukraine. I mean, they said that Putin gives diversionary information about when he's going to arrive, how he's going to arrive, this sort of thing to throw people off the scent in case there are any informers. They're not really sure, you know, they, they might be told, oh, he's staying in the Dutch tonight, but actually if he isn't, he's staying somewhere else, that's a change. We kind of knew, already knew all that, but this guy was able to give sort of Brand new examples of, of Putin's paranoia, such as insisting that one of his highly trained protection officers is his washing machine operator, and uh, massive aliens of all star uh, within the, the the sort of luxury compound that he's built for himself and his phonies in in Crimea. This former bodyguard told us that uh, special trained divers, armed divers, swim around the private beaches that Putin and, and his friends relax on, looking for possible saboteurs and assassins. He was also able to tell us that Putin has ordered uh, a doubling of the number of uh, security dogs around his compound since the start of uh, the war in Ukraine. It's a really in- interesting insight from, from this guy, which really spoke to some of the the, the, the actions and, and, and uh, that Putin is, is putting into play to try and defend himself as, as his paranoia grow, grows worse. Thank you very much, James. As you say, it's an extraordinary insight. Uh, Francis, what's your reaction to it? Thanks. Yes. Well, another thing that struck me in the interview is when he described Putin's palace in Crimea as a luxury mini city that had to be fully operational constantly with fresh food and flowers. I've got the quote in front of me. It says, it's a fantasy place. There are fitness halls, fountains, beautiful parks, tea house, barbecue zones and beaches. It all sounds rather like Nero's golden palace, but there is a serious point to be made here, which is how can a leader make rational decisions when so severed from reality? It was in such palaces we understand that Putin isolated himself during the pandemic, reading obscure books and determining that now was the time to invade Ukraine fully. And this sounds like an obvious point, but there is a reason that number 10 Downing Street, for example, is a modest house in the heart of London. A prime minister cannot escape reality when they can smell it. Now, the other story is one I personally find very concerning, namely that Russia has replaced a statue honouring a brutal Soviet spy chief torn down at the end of the Cold War. This is a statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky, the founder of the Cheka, the Soviet secret police, and it was unveiled at the Moscow headquarters of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service on the anniversary of his birthday. We understand that Russian spies posed for a photo around the sculpture, which doesn't sound like the wisest ideas for a secret service, but anyway, uh, which was put on display amid a push by the Kremlin to promote this Soviet mythology 
to inspire Russians to support the invasion of Ukraine. We understand that the head of the Foreign Intelligence Services said that Dzhinsky was a good example for Putin's agents to follow. And I'll quote from him. He said he was the standard of crystal honesty, dedication and fidelity to duty. His winged words that only a reason, sorry, only a person with a cold head, a warm heart and clean hands can become a security officer has become a significant moral guideline for several generations of employees of the security agencies of our country. I think this tells you all you need to know about the mechanisms of state terror at play in Russia today. For background, Iron Felix, as he was known, was born into an aristocratic Polish family, but joined the Bolshevik Revolution in 1970 and subsequently rose to become head of Lenin's secret police force, a force that's conveniently forgotten by those who sought to argue in the 1960s and 70s that Lenin was essentially a democratic revolutionary, a contradiction in terms of ever there was one, whose revolution was corrupted by Stalin upon his death. This force was responsible for summary mass executions of those deemed to be political opponents of the regime, tens of thousands of them. And Dzhinsky was lionized by Stalin, himself a figure who has been or had his reputation restored in modern Russia. And when Dzhinsky died in 1926, he was given an official burial, burial by the Kremlin and his body is interred in the Kremlin wall necropolis, the former national cemetery of the Soviet Union, which sits in Moscow's Red Square. I remember seeing it a few years ago. And as I posited in last week's episode of our video series, Defense in Depth, is it any wonder that a society which venerates such individuals, I mean, Lenin's body still lies in its purpose-built mausoleum in Red Square, is capable of the war crimes that we've seen committed in Ukraine against civilians and soldiers? I would say no. And it is a very, very worrying trend indeed that it's not just Stalin who's having its reputation brought back from the brink but many, many other brutal figures from Russia's Soviet past. Thank you very much, Francis. We'll go to our final thoughts now. James Kilner, do you want to go first? Yeah, just a quick update on this missile attack that Don was talking about at the beginning. There is now uh, Russian Russian authorities seem, seem to acknowledge now that two people were killed and 26 were injured. Um, and Ukrainian supporters have been saying that this is really the end of a sort of a, a sophisticated, coordinated attack by Ukrainian special forces and their air force. Now, in the last week or so, we've seen quite a few uh, Ukrainian special forces amphibious attacks on Russian or, or Russian-controlled uh, infrastructure in the Black Sea and even along the coast of uh, by Crimea. Now, the uh, Ukrainian forces say that this may have been they may, the, the sort of objective of these attacks may have been to take out radar stations ahead of this planned attack last night. Uh, this is, to my knowledge, one of the first and one of, certainly one of the most successful missile attacks on Sevastopol in, in occupied Crimea, which we know is heavily defended by air defense systems. So to get through those air defense systems, it seems that Ukrainians had to disable some of them. And as Dom said, 10 missiles were fine. Three appear to have gone through. So the preliminary, the ground preparing action of the special forces seemed to work and these three missiles apparently hit the dry docks, where, again, just to, just to build on what Don was saying, there was the, an amphibious warship was, was struck. But the other vessel that Don referenced, and this is really important, was a Kilo-class uh, submarine. Now, this is the first time, I think, that a Ukrainian missile has managed to hit a submarine since the start of the war in February 22. We know that they've uh, destroyed and sunk some um, some of the Russian battleships and some warships, including the flagship in Moscow last April. But this is the first time they've hit one of the submarines. Now, naval experts say you've got four of these Kilo submarines in the Black Sea. And it's these submarines which are the most formidable, dangerous uh, weapon that the Russian Navy have in the Black Sea. Uh, they can each carry four or five caliber missiles. And it's these missiles which are often the ones fired at Ukraine. Waging anti-submarine warfare is very complicated and they seem to have hit the sweet spot. They they, they down the down the radar systems. They found out that, you know, when 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 the submarine was in in the dry dock being repaired and and they've hit it. So this is hugely significant and it's a big, big win for the Ukrainians. And we'll see see what the reaction is. 
Well, thank you very much for those additional thoughts, James. Francis, can I come to you for your very final thoughts? Thanks, David. Yesterday, we had the privilege of meeting the team at the Institute for the Study of War here in Washington, where we recorded many fascinating interviews, including with Mason Clark, their head of the Russia team, whose interview listeners will hear with him at the end of this episode. They are a remarkable team, and it was a pleasure to shake hands with them. You'll hear in the interview more about the daily process of their acquiring information from the battlefield and beyond their methodologies, and the interesting moral dynamic to their work as they've become an increasingly trusted and relied upon source of information, not only by journalists, but political leaders around the world. So I highly recommend that interview. Now, today I head to the Capitol to interview several congressmen about the war. I walked past it on Monday, actually, in order to admire it at sunset and to doff my cap to Ulysses S. Grant, my second favourite president. Uh, Let me know on Twitter who you think the first is. And it was a glorious sight. And it got me thinking, when Lincoln had his first inauguration address outside in 1861, the famous dome was still under construction. And when the Civil War broke out, Lincoln was told that the Union couldn't afford to keep financing its construction. But Lincoln said no, that construction had to continue as it gave him hope for the future of the Union and the country. And in the same way, I think one of the most remarkable aspects of the war in Ukraine is that this is a war which is rebuilding Ukrainian society. It is not only fighting a war on the battlefield, but is seeking to build a new nation and is investing enormously in new infrastructure projects as part of that. Some of that spending has been criticised, and perhaps rightfully so, where profit is in play. But in a general sense, the country is not only fighting, but building. And for me, that is yet another reason that it will be impossible for Putin to ever win this war and to seize the country. The cord has well and truly been cut. And the Civil War was a defining war of the United States. It went from a plural to a singular in how people spoke of it, going from the United States are to the United States is. And perhaps we are seeing a similar transformation inward and outward today on European soil. Thank you, Dom, Francis and James. Yesterday, Francis Durnley and I went to the Institute for the Study of War here in Washington, D.C., for a series of interviews with their key analysts and thinkers. The ISW has been around for about 16 years. It originally began by covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Today, it has teams for Russia, China and the Middle East. The bread and butter for the ISW is day-to-day tracking in each of these areas aiming to make military analysis comprehensible to a civilian audience. Francis and I spoke to senior analyst and Russia team lead Mason Clark. Here's our conversation. So I'm Mason Clark. I'm senior analyst and Russia team lead here at the Institute for the Study of War. I have been Russia team lead since the summer of 2020, and I designed our daily update structure and have led it throughout the course of the war. Could you talk about the day-to-day process of building the comprehensive reports you do? They're extremely extensive. What's the process? So we have a team of nine of us on Russia team supported by our mapping team of five people. And because we produce the updates seven days a week, we're on a rotation of everyone's working roughly five days a week, but obviously varied of uh, your days off might be a Tuesday and a Thursday on any given week. So each day we have four or five of our staff members on to produce each update. And our day starts at around 8 a.m. Washington, D.C. time. Uh, We're entirely based here on the East Coast of the United States. So we're collecting when it's around four in the afternoon in Ukraine when we begin our day. We start out with checking our array of sources, which are generally around 150 to 200 sources, both Russian, Ukrainian, and international official government outlets, various media organizations, both Ukrainian and international, and very importantly, a lot of social media, either Twitter accounts, but most prominently Telegram, of course, which has been the main way that this source has been reported uh, on the Russian side. So the team logs on each day uh, here in D.C. and spends really the first 
five or so hours of the day going through all of those sources and writing up the SIGAX, the significant activities from the last 24 hours. We have a series of documents that we're collaborating in that are largely grouped by different geographical axes. You love the Zaporizhia Oblast, the Southern Donetsk Oblast area, as well as various lines of effort. We have a section on Russian force generation, for example. And the bulk of the day is cataloging everything from those sources and writing them up uh, for data points that we can use both for the day-to-day updates, but oftentimes even more crucially, leverage in the future. And one of our biggest strengths of the updates is that they're rarely just the last 24 hours of events, uh, but rather having this context of we've seen the Russians attack this town today. Five days ago, we saw a leading indicator of a reconnaissance group and being able to sort that information so we can recall it easily for analysis. Around the middle of the day, we will have what we call our daily sync between the drafting team and the analytical reviewer, who who is either myself or Dr. Fred Kagan, who we work with closely. Um, And that is where we establish the key focuses of each daily update and how we want to write about uh, the main assessments we think need to be communicated. Now, the various geographical axes section that make up the bulk of the update are relatively set. Uh, We talk about key inflections if there's any territorial changes to make sure we all agree on our interpretation of the available data. But the bulk of that is deciding what's going to go into the top lines, which are the paragraphs uh, beginning the updates that can be on an array of topics, either deep dives on Russian capabilities or diplomatic uh, maneuvers or new provisions of aid. And we work out how we want to frame those and who on the team is going to write each of those sections for the day. The bulk of the afternoon then is writing up all of those sections and doing a two-tiered reviewed system of one of the senior staff members of the drafting team reviewing all sections before the final analytical reviewer checks it for publication in the afternoon or evening. You talked about a moment ago Twitter sources being key. Some people will hear that and think, oh, Twitter, this is how can you possibly rely on anything? So can you just talk a little bit about who are you reading on Twitter? Who do you trust? And and why is social media so valuable in this war in a way that perhaps it hasn't been in previous ones? Certainly. Well, I'll lead off my answer to that question by saying that as far as we're concerned, there is no such thing as a 100% reliable source. That extends to... Uh, social media, Twitter, Telegram, and even government statements. Either intentionally or unintentionally, both Ukrainian and Russian governments and even international statements will not always capture the entirety of what's going on on the ground. One common example of that, for example, is that oftentimes the Ukrainian general staff will not explicitly say the Russians have captured a town, but whenever they suddenly one day stop saying that fighting is ongoing in the town, that usually means that they've had to retreat from it. On the social media front, I'd say 90, 95%, if not more, of our collection is done in either Russian or Ukrainian, which is an absolutely essential part of how we're able to do what we do. Every member of the team has Russian skills, and we've all picked up Ukrainian as fast as we can. And I cannot underestimate the... I should probably get the directionality right there. I can't overestimate the importance of being able to read these reports in their original language, understanding the slang, the nuance, uh, and all of those implications we pull out. Now, in terms of who exactly we're looking at, it's a mix of local journalists. Many Ukrainian journalists are quite effective. Many of the units we're looking at actually have their own social media pages, both on the Ukrainian side. Several brigades have their own Facebook pages where they will post footage of their advances. And on the Russian side as well, both officially and unofficially, many units will post about their actions, including a lot of footage that we can geolocate. We layer this in with a wide array of commercially available satellite imagery and even footage shot by civilians in the war zone because still nearly everyone has a smartphone on the ground and is recording what's ongoing along with selected releases by the fighting forces of drone footage and that sort of thing. Now, the key thing is never take any given social media post as a given and the bulk of our work each morning is chasing down and verifying each one of these. Uh, in terms of locating what piece of terrain a given video is of and oriented it on the front lines. If we see a video of Ukrainian forces advancing onto a certain tree line, we will pull up uh, commercial satellite imagery and see if we can locate that in space and determine, okay, this Ukrainian unit advanced 750 meters today based on that imagery. It goes without saying that 
a lot of that is working in a very unverified and low likelihood space, which is a fact of life and in, in many ways a key advantage of our work is we're not simply reporting out 100% confirmed facts and nothing else. Inherent in it is that we are making analytical judgment calls, drawing on our history of open source analysis, as well as military knowledge of understanding how to uh, assess different types of military operations. And the likelihood assessments that we include in our updates are key parts of them and shouldn't be sort of left out of saying that it is likely but not certain that the Russians captured a town on a given day uh, is a very key part of what we're doing. You, you mentioned in that answer something really interesting about the importance of speaking the language of the Russian and Ukrainian. Do you have any examples of that, of where uh, you, you feel like you get something on a much better level because you've got Russian, because, you, because you've got some Ukrainian? Uh, and that, you know, talk us through that. Are there any good examples? Sure. Uh, go on in length at that. I mean, some of it is simple local knowledge of a very common frustrating thing is that Russian sources still insist on using the Russian or Soviet names for various Ukrainian towns. And so for nearly every location on the front line, you have to learn two names and figure out the association. Another one is the simple number of the slang that permeates in any military environment and learning what words refer to what systems and what units. A key example there is that most Russian units have an honorific title that is associated with what that unit did in World War II. And that is what will be mentioned by a lot of Russian sources rather than simply saying the 4th Tank Division and things like that. A lot of it is also simply picking apart the the sarcasm of many of the sources. This is something we've seen a lot of others on Twitter using the Russian Telegram sources that we go to directly of there just laced with these sardonic statements of how well the Russians are doing or the effectiveness of Ministry of Defense commanders when they're attacking them and criticizing them for their efforts. And oftentimes those without the language skills will just pop it into Google Translate and not at all understand the context of what's being pulled out. And understanding the sort of the tweaks in meaning and how most of the sources we're using do not simply report what is going on and understanding that context of what they're referring to of, uh, you know, slang names for places and even uh, re- historical references are very important to pulling out what's actually being reported. Um, I was going to ask about, you, you talked about the importance of, of building consensus, as it were, or at least going through the sources and sitting down and deciding, do we think this or do we not think this? I'm just interested in, in the process of that conversation and are there often disagreements or do you broadly actually see unity in opinion? Oh, absolutely not. No, we are all over the place when it comes to assessments and have gotten, I've, there's too many days that we've gone down rabbit holes of spending 10 minutes unpacking whether the Russians captured a certain town or not. But uh, I say that glibly, but it's a key part of how we've been able to be so accurate. We absolutely talk through it. The key thing is, again, sort of related to the language issue is oftentimes we'll have different interpretations of a direct translation. And a key part of the daily syncs we have to determine what goes into each update is talking through each of those points uh, and how we interpret them in the wider context. On the mapping side, it's a lot of comparing notes of, okay, everyone pull up the map. What do you think this is depicting? Is this town in location X or in location Y? Is Should we trust this blurry footage? Have we seen it before? Is it just being reposted from earlier? And we talk through that on a daily basis for nearly every piece of evidence in terms of changing our control of terrain maps in particular. And one thing that I've really focused on instilling in the team is that we're a, a very flat organization of insight can come from any member of the team. Some of the researchers, uh, you know, in their second or third month have corrected me when I, I've been wrong about how to interpret a given piece of data. And that constant internal churn is very important to keep ourselves honest. Now, of course, we get things wrong, as everyone does, uh, and we try to be very honest as well about pointing out in our updates when a previous assessment of ours was incorrect. That's an interesting aspect of the maps as well, is in some ways they're more conservative than some of the other open source maps out there, of we very knowingly are 
usually lagging a day or two behind where troops likely actually are, because what we're mapping is confirmed advances uh, rather than trying to speculate. But even then, we will sometimes make changes and include in the annotations of the control of terrain maps. For example, we have recoded this town as Ukrainian-occupied. However, we assess that this actually occurred 72 hours ago, and we just got confirmation now. And keeping those sort of temporal relationships clear is really important to maintaining a, a, a good fidelity of our both our updates and the maps. Are there any other examples of of errors or re? calculations you've had to do that are particularly stick in your mind? I mean, we in our coverage have sometimes realized, you know, that there's more to a story than we initially thought and reported. So it's a natural process. It's nothing to be <laughs> ashamed of, as it were. Are there any specific examples that come to mind of where you perhaps you got something wrong that you then reassessed? Well, I mean, the infamous and glaring example for us is that we didn't think the Russians were going to launch a full-scale invasion. We wrote a report in December of 2021 looking at their force deployments and seeing that they were very scattered. Uh, a lot of the units that were deployed in Belarus were from the Eastern Military District, which is arguably the, the weakest of the Russian military. And we assessed that this was not the force structure that would be needed for a large-scale campaign to capture Kiev. And we assessed, therefore, that if there was going to be a Russian attack, it was going to be much more localized in Crimea uh, and eastern Ukraine. We were, of course, wrong on that, but I think the Russians were also wrong about their own capabilities. And particularly in the early months of the war, I mean, I think every analyst that's looked at this will have a story for you of the simple profound shock of seeing Russian performance and contrarily how effective the Ukrainians had been and correcting. Even in February, we thought the Russians were going to drive further than they did. Um, another key one that comes to mind is in terms of uh, the Russian strike campaign last winter. It definitely at, uh, ended up continuing on longer than we originally anticipated. They were willing to expend more of their stocks of precision weapons than we thought when we saw them ramp up those strikes in October. And that's something that we're now being very conscious of as we the winter months start to come into view and Russian strikes, particularly using the Iranian-provided drones, are continuing of being conscious of if they could actually achieve more than we previously thought they could have. When something major happens, like the launch of a counteroffensive, or indeed the full-scale invasion itself, talk me through a day like that, because I can imagine that that is, we find the same, <laughs> extremely frenetic. And it's, it's when really, you know, the chips are down and you've got to really know who your sources are and who you trust. I just I, bring us back to what it's like in the office at that moment. Certainly. Well, it largely splits into two of one, when it's happening... Overnight, Ukraine time, we're coming in to an operation starting, like when uh, major movements happen on the ground. That's actually turns out to be a still relatively normal day. Uh, I think back to the Kharkiv offensive, for example, uh, when the Ukrainians made such good advances. That didn't press us too much more than we would have normally expected. We had a little bit more to map, uh, but it was uh, sort of in our normal collection procedures. The real headache days are when things happen overnight, Ukraine and Russia time. Case in point being Prigozhin's rebellion, which I, I will never forget uh, the second day when they were in the middle of the march on Moscow. We were in our much delayed daily sync for the update at around 4.30 p.m. We had just completed an hour-long conversation about how we were going to frame it, um, and one of my researchers opened Twitter said, uh, Mason Lukashenko just <coughs> said that he negotiated an end to the rebellion. And we all just sort of sat there for a second and went, okay, let's do another 10 minutes of collection and then we'll repeat this sink all over again, toss out what we just said about the, you know, approach to Moscow and that sort of thing. A really key aspect of that is eventually we have to do a cutoff somewhere of we will, the key adaptation for us is just stating forthrightly, okay, the last data that made it into this update was from 4 p.m. DC time. We know we're a few hours behind, but we need to write something eventually. Um, but no, it certainly has just led to a lot of daily updates. Those are some of the most engaging days in the office of, you know, we're all finally getting around to lunch at around 7 p.m. Uh, as we begin drafting the update. <laughs> you've got this, you've spoken about this really impressive sort of eye of, almost like an eye of God attitude to sort of seeing the operational movements and seeing things from a really sort of zoomed out perspective. But it's all based on this granular stuff of uh, social media videos, you know, the chatter from the soldiers and so on. So I just wanted to ask with your Russian skills, like, what, what do you make of some of, of, of the soldiers themselves when they're, when they're sort of chatting to each other and what they're posting? Do you, 
because you, you're obviously looking from such a you know far distance. But do you feel you understand them on any level? And what have you learned about them in, in the last in the, in, since the beginning of the full scale invasion? That's an interesting question. We definitely try to be cognizant of what we can and can't know, and we are very aware that for all that we can cover and write about, in some ways it doesn't hold a candle to being on the ground, seeing the terrain, talking to the personnel. It has been fascinating understanding sort of the permutations of Russian morale and how Russian soldiers in particular are thinking about the conflict. I focus on that because we don't collect as explicitly on Ukrainian units, so we certainly pick up on that as well. The biggest risk I think I found of that, and I think I think my hesitation in answering that question is we're very cautious about not overgeneralizing from individual data points because we need to keep in our minds at all times that we're not seeing everything. And at the end of the day, it's often the most dissatisfied soldiers are those that are talking the loudest on social media. And we sometimes have to take a step back and go, okay, is it just this one battalion that hasn't gotten fresh food in two weeks? Or is this a wider problem for Russian supply lines and that sort of thing? Sometimes it is. Sometimes the Russian command structure truly is broken for large sections of the front line. But I do think at times that has led into an overcorrection and talking about the Russian military as completely a shell and ineffective combat force when many of their units, even while heavily degraded, are, particularly as we've seen in the South, quite effective at repelling Ukrainian attacks. Could we talk a little bit more about the Russian military then? I mean, you've been looking at how they've been rebuilding over the past few months, obviously in preparation for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. What have you seen in, in, in your role as the lead analyst on this? So much of the Russian performance in the war has been driven by almost their, their original sin of how they began the invasion without fully mobilizing the Russian military. They did some, but did not fully uh, issue a call-up of conscripts as the Russian military personnel system is designed to before a large-scale war such as this. So early on, they took very, very heavy casualties in their most effective officers, their most effective personnel, the long-serving professional soldiers, which are known as kontraktniki. And they've had to correct this throughout the war through these succeeding waves of what we call pseudo or crypto mobilization of calling for volunteers or targeted conscription of Russian reservists. And in many ways, simply rushing the most qualified personnel around the front line without a break. A key example of that now is that the Russian airborne forces, the VDV, which have historically been some of the best in the Russian military, have been run absolutely ragged. Of They are, at this point, nearly the only force in the Russian military that can conduct competent offensive operations, after losing the Wagner Group, that is. And they have been shipped from sector to sector as needed to try and launch localized counterattacks against the Ukrainian. Now, that means that the Russians are struggling with these offensive operations, but as we've seen in the South, they do still remain dangerous and they have been incredibly effective at digging in. I've looked at the Russian military for quite some time and what we've seen in southern Ukraine is a almost perfectly doctrinally accurate Russian defense of the lines of fortifications, the minefields, the firing lanes for anti-tank guided missiles are exactly what you would see in the training manuals that these motorized rifle troops are receiving. And they've done that quite competently. That's inflicted losses on the Ukrainians and slowed them down, although it does mean that the Russian forces are less reactive generally. And once they are wedged out of these original positions, they start to struggle a bit more. On top of that, one, I think, understudied aspect of the war is that the Russians are learning and innovating, certainly not at the pace I think they would like, and they're very much struggling to implement it at scale, uh, in part because units aren't able to rotate out of the front line, learn lessons, and teach them to others, and then deploy back in. But their command structure has improved over the course of the war. They've gotten remarkably better at their coordination of artillery fire, whereas early on they had incredible delays between requests for artillery strikes and receiving support. They've gotten much more effective at using electronic warfare and disrupting Ukrainian units. And the Russian Air Force, particularly its helicopters, have uh, become much more adept at uh, hiding from Ukrainian air defense and targeting Ukrainian armored vehicles. So it's not as if the Russian military is still fighting in the same way that it did in February 2022, and they are adapting. 
I think the big question for me, and is a lot of what I'm focusing my research on beyond the daily updates, is how will they be able to instill that as we go into 2024 and 2025? And the risk for them, uh, in some ways, thankfully, is that a lot of this innovation will be lost on the front lines because they need these veteran personnel that are learning these effective lessons immediately. They can't be pulled back to rest and refit. They're having to be rushed around uh, to confront various Ukrainian attacks. What do you think the winter campaign is going to look like? And particularly the January, there's already expectation there might be some new offensive in January to try and do what they did this year and seize back the military and political narrative. What's your sense? Certainly. So the Ukrainian counteroffensive, for one, is going to continue into the fall and winter months, not at as rapid a pace as I think the Ukrainians or anyone might like. The weather will, of course, have effects, but the fighting, as we've seen throughout the war to date, does not completely halt in the muddy season or in the winter months. The question of a Russian offensive is interesting. We, they continue to conduct localized counterattacks. And I do certainly believe that uh, Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov has uh, aims of regaining the initiative and launching a wider operational effect. Uh, frankly, I think rooted in a pretty consistent uh, overestimation of the capabilities of his own forces. So I don't doubt that the Russians are trying to cohere reinforcements to form assault groups for fighting in the later months of the year in early 2024. But I'm thankfully not very optimistic about their chances to uh, really regain the operational initiative. And just, I know you're the Russia lead, but you've talked a lot there about the Russian army and what it's done. What about the Ukrainian army? How's it innovated in your opinion? And what's its capability at this moment in the war? Well, I mean, I think as we've all seen, it has been a highly effective force and Ukrainian morale has been simply unmatched and has just been an incredible credit to the Ukrainian society and particularly how all-encompassing support and involvement in the war has been, and that civilian innovation and mobilization has been absolutely essential to how well they have performed. They've done quite well uh, in playing to their own strengths. Of They can't operate with the air power that a NATO military would like. They know they have to preserve their personnel and armored vehicles and are instead focusing on these uh, interdiction campaigns and small infantry attacks to degrade uh, Russian positions. But it is certainly a risk that they have to husband their resources quite carefully because they are, uh, at the end of the day, quite outnumbered by the Russian military and they cannot suffer the same losses that the Russians can and maintain their lines. But the creativity of Russian commanders and, pardon me, Ukrainian commanders and units has been just incredible to behold in terms of targeting uh, Russian command posts and dealing with their electronic warfare. And I can only begin to imagine the challenges that the Ukrainian military's logistics officers are going through right now, operating equipment from dozens of nations and keeping all of these supply chains running. has got to be just a Herculean effort that they've been able to do quite admirably, even as they are uh, still dealing with the challenges of shifting from their old pre-war Soviet kit to this menagerie of Western-provided gear. One of the things you mentioned um, when you talked about how, in some ways, the Russian military is improving was that you said that their command structure is much better. What, what do you mean by that? Could you go into a bit more detail? How, how has it changed and what have they done? Sure. So when the Russians invaded, they deployed elements of all five of their military districts. But for a reason we still cannot quite tell, they did not appoint a single theater commander for the war in Ukraine. And that led to a lot of competition between different areas of the front uh, and no clear relationships. Over the course of the last year and change, they've suffered quite heavy casualties, but have largely started to move towards a more integrated command structure. It's not perfect, but they've been quite flexible at pulling together the various units they have, because very few Russian conventional military formations are fighting as entire divisions. They're intermingled with volunteer units, uh, units from the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, various PMCs, even uh, after Wagner, there are other PMCs on the front lines as well. And while these command structures are very ad hoc, they're very localized, often predicated on sort of personal relationships rather than a strict chain of command with the Russian Ministry of Defense, they've gotten far more reactive. And in their own way, the Russians have a uh, 
adapted and worked with civilian society in some similar ways to how the Ukrainians have. Now, the bad manifestation of this is there's been several examples throughout the war of Russian commanders begging openly on Telegram for air support because they can't contact the Air Force unit that's supposed to be getting that support. And the only thing they have left is to just post to everyone, please give us air support at X location. That's not ideal. And they are struggling with that. But overall, they've been able to rectify a lot of these tactical decision-making problems, shorten the time between uh, requests for fire and them being delivered. Now, at the larger scale, though, I do think we're seeing sort of a, a calcification of the Russian military. What is paramount to Putin and to Defense Minister Shoigu at this point is loyalty, not quite effectiveness. And we've seen this repeatedly in that commanders will continue operationally unsound orders to continue attacks or hold a given piece of terrain no matter what, because to show their own initiative and break with those higher orders is going to be a threat to their careers. There's been a lot of reflections that this is a hybrid war, that something quite different is taking place here. We've got elements of World War One, elements of World War Two, but also the future of warfare. Is that your view or is this perhaps more of an orthodox view than many believe? That's an interesting question. I mean, we're certainly observing many new elements that I think will shape future conflicts. Uh, The proliferation of drones and electronic warfare and the availability of information are easy ones. Um, I wouldn't say, though, that we're in some necessary, this is a new type of war. Uh, There certainly have been many carryovers from previous conflicts. And of course, as you you noted, sometimes very static fighting is that's very analogous to what we saw in World War One. I do think it can be a little overstated that we're seeing sort of a new dawn of warfare or anything like that. Because at the end of the day, what's going on is when it when we're looking at whether or not the Ukrainian counteroffensive can punch through a defensive line uh, and infiltrate around a Russian strongpoint, we're seeing things that would be familiar to any soldier of the last 120 years in different ways. The availability of information, maybe the use of drones, the equipment being used, some of the tactics are certainly evolving. But I don't think we're necessarily seeing a sea change in the the conduct of warfare writ large. Out of everything you've seen since the start of the full-scale invasion, what would you say is the sort of most surprising thing? What what really stands out for you is something that when you saw it, you were like, I've never seen that before. I think some of the the early days of the Russian invasion and the attack around Kyiv still is very lodged in my mind and the incredible resistance that the Ukrainian forces put up, both through uh, the use of light anti-tank weapons and uh, irregular forces attacking the oncoming Russian columns. But also there was, there was a great quote from a Ukrainian commander last summer that said that the Battle of Kyiv was won by a brigade of Ukrainian artillery firing for a month straight. And seeing these reinforcements being rushed to the front and how adaptable they were in the face of uh, the Russian attack, as well as how badly coordinated some of those early Russian operations were. Beyond that, I mean, Prigozhin's rebellion is going to be stuck in my head the rest of my life. That was Us too, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that was one of the most memorable work days I've had of seeing that and watching the dynamics play out of what Prigozhin was trying to accomplish um, and how in many ways unopposed that march was before it actually fell apart um, has certainly had very interesting implications. I think we're going to be unpacking for years to come about the ownership of violent force and the, the status of Putin's regime. You spoke at the beginning about sort of a day in the life of the ISW, how you pull together your daily reports and what goes into them. How has that changed through the war? Do they they look a lot different now than to when you began? What new elements have you had to introduce to capture what's going on? They're so much better than they were when we began the war. On February 24th, there were three of us on the team, myself, George, who is now our mapping team lead, and Katya. And the first couple of months of the war, that was it. It was just a few of us writing them. Often the first two weeks of the war, I wrote most of the updates solo. And now, of course, we have a team of eight. And the breadth we have of being able to expand and talk about the information space in particular is something that really in about June of 2022, we were able to carve out enough breathing space to look at those dynamics and see how important they've become to the war. We've certainly built up a breadth of knowledge about the different fighting formations. I, I Really, I would say in every way, the updates have gotten better. It's I'd certainly hope that they've gotten better across 18 months of doing this. And our maps have gotten so much more granular in our ability to identify what's going on. Our mapping team has just 
improved by leaps and bounds in its ability to do geolocation of imagery and pinpoint exactly what changes are ongoing on the front lines. And it's just been incredible to see how widely used those maps have been. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually, is they are extremely widely used by journalists, by people in the defense industry, you name it. They're extremely well cited. Do you feel, therefore, an actor in this war in some way? In a way, yes. And we're very, very conscious of that because we know that what we say and what map changes we make are going to be picked up and oftentimes used as uh, the first draft of what's going on on a day-to-day basis, both by journalists as well as by intelligence agencies. We know that they're using our work, um, which certainly is a pressure and is something that we think about very carefully. And a lot of time in our daily meetings goes into how do we want to phrase this? Could it be misinterpreted? Are we using the correct language here? And I think we have a fairly good track record. We have certainly messed up throughout the war. We've misframed things. Uh, We haven't highlighted our confidence levels as well as I would have liked to. Um, But I overall am very proud of what we've done. And we are open about when we've made mistakes and correct those, I hope, as quickly as possible and remain, I think, a very cohesive and trustworthy resource because of that willingness to admit when we're wrong and innovate. You've been very sort of honest and humble with us talking about your mistakes, but when have you been most proud of the team? When have you really pulled some work out of the bag? You've been like, yeah, nobody else is doing it like this. I think we have done a phenomenal job of tracking Russian unit positions and their various strengths and weaknesses over time. We've done a couple of iterations of basically orders of battle of Russian forces in Ukraine. A key one was in the Battle of Bakhmut. I think we were more more accurate in terms of Ukrainian capabilities, although certainly that very protracted battle came with cost to the Ukrainian military and their ability to degrade the Wagner Group and other Russian forces. One of the cleanest ones, actually, that I think I'm personally most proud of is myself and a, a colleague that's now uh, moved on to an intelligence agency, wrote a piece back in May of 2022 about what the implications of a Russian announcement of annexing areas of occupied Ukraine would be. And when that then happened in the fall, we absolutely hit the nail on the head in terms of how the Russians were going to do that, to what scale they would try to integrate the territories, and what it would mean for their changes in rhetoric about the war and sort of trying to frame it as if it was now suddenly happening on Russian soil. So that personally, I think, is the single piece of writing I'm most proud of that I've done during the war. We're journalists and you know what can get headlines, what interests readers, and no doubt you'll know the stories are going to get picked up and those that that aren't. Are there any stories that you or subjects of interest that you focus on that you think are underexplored in this war and that really would be imperative on other journalists to look more deeply into? I think one area we've certainly innovated in is simply covering the Russian telegram space, the mill bloggers, as Katya has dubbed them, and understanding the dynamics and how not only they affect recruitment and how these Russian units are staffed in discussion of the war, but they have a real impact on Russian policymaking. The Ministry of Defense is worried about what they say about the war and oftentimes responds to them. And I think unpacking and understanding All of the varied inputs into Russian decision-making is something that is absolutely essential in this war, because for as much of a micromanager and autocrat as he is, Putin is not the sole input in Russian decision-making in the war in Ukraine, and understanding all of those other varied aspects are very important. Beyond that, one thing that I think is going to become increasingly crucial as we go into 2024 is what international support Russia is able to get. Of course, as we speak, Kim Jong-un is in eastern Russia meeting with Putin, almost certainly about some form of military supplies and economic deals there. We've seen, of course, the story of Iranian supplies of drones and other equipment. And as Russia feels the pinch of protracted conflict, I think documenting those is going to be absolutely essential. I don't know if we've got any more questions. And if not, I would say, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you really want really want to mention? Or is there anything you really want to you know, highlight for our listeners that they should really, from, you know, they listen to this entire conversation, what should they, if there's one thing you could pick out for them to take away, what would it be? I think the key thing that my team keeps in mind every day is that the outcome of the war is certainly not set in stone. We remain very cautiously optimistic about Ukrainian chances, um, but are very careful to provide not simply a forecast of we think the war will end in X way, 
but a series of options and laying out the key variables of where this is going to go. And some of those key variables are naturally the degree of Western support for Ukraine. And one of the big worries on my team is that we will start to see a drawdown in support from the US, UK, NATO partners for Ukraine in 2024. Unfortunately, this war is going to continue for quite some time. We have not seen any indication that the Kremlin is open to serious negotiations that aren't a near wholesale Ukrainian surrender. And this is going to be a conflict that the Ukrainians are going to keep fighting. And I personally believe, and I'm confident saying for my entire team, we continue to believe that the Western world should support them as much as possible. And for listeners, where can they find your work? Where, what websites on social media? Where, where can they follow what, what you're doing? We post all of our updates at our website, understandingwar.org. And we are very active on Twitter or X, as the case may be, uh, and can be found there at the Institute for the Study of War. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 